Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello and welcome to the FT Business Books podcast, the place to find the best in business writing. I'm Helen Barrett, Work and Careers Editor, and with me as usual is the ever-popular Andrew Hill, our Management Editor. Welcome, Andrew. Hello. In this series, we talk to the six brilliant authors who have made the shortlist of the 2017 FT and McKinsey Business Book of the Year Award, the world's most coveted prize for business writing. Find the shortlist at ft.com forward slash book award and find out who wins on November the 6th. You can contact us on Twitter at FTWorkCareers using the hashtag FTBizBooks. First up, a rollicking tale of a massive financial scandal and a provocative and revealing account of a financial system that was crooked throughout, all that from the blurb. The Spider Network by David Enrich. David joins us on the line from New York. Welcome, David. Good morning. Your book was perhaps the longest subtitle in business book history, and I'm going to read it out. It is The Wild Story of a Maths Genius, a Gang of Backstabbing Bankers, and One of the Greatest Scams in Financial History. That scam, of course, was the LIBOR scandal. David, did you write that incredibly long title yourself? You know, no one's actually ever asked me that before, and it's (laughs) kind of an interesting story. This is the product of some rare moments of disagreement between me and my editor. And so we had to compromise on what would be included and what wouldn't be included. And we ended up just including everything. And it turned into a bit of a joke. And if you look at the cover of the book, which is, you know, it's a pretty crowded cover. And we ended up deciding that it was people would kind of think it was amusing and it would be a conversation starter. And sure, it is, I think it might be the longest subtitle in, you know, probably of the year, not just in the business category, but it's it's definitely a a mouthful. For those who haven't seen the cover, and it is an extraordinary cover, it's quite an arresting cover, it's almost like one of those children's puzzles where you might have words filled in with pictures. So you've got the wild story of a maths genius and you've got a little headshot of your main character, a gang of backstabbing bankers and you've got some very sinister silhouettes, a, a man in a suit with a knife and one of the greatest scams in financial history and you've got a cartoon hand sort of helping itself to the letter O in the history and a pile of money. It's a really complicated story to get across, isn't it? And it must have been a challenge to get it across in book form in a way that would be digestible. But I mean, I can see why you went for this long headline. Give us an overview of the story. So this is uh, the story, as you said, of a, a huge financial scandal but it's also the story of, and more than that, it's the story of the people behind the scandal and the institutions behind the scandal. What I've tried to do is, I think most people, 
because they don't necessarily know about this particular scandal. They know about a lot of financial scandals. And they know the basic recipe, which is that financial institutions or employees of financial institutions push a little bit too far, get kind of greedy, and rip off the customers, rip off innocent people, and it all ends badly. And that's a kind of common theme. So what I've tried to do here is actually bring some of these characters to life in a way that presents them in kind of a less caricatured way than maybe we're accustomed to in the daily pages of newspapers, where people just seem like one-dimensional black-and-white characters intent on inflicting evil on the world. And I got to know a lot of the characters in the scandal, in particular the purported ringleader, um, a guy named Tom Hayes, who's mildly autistic, mathematician, born and raised in London. And I spent years getting to know the guy and, and getting to know some of his accomplices as well. And it turns out that the caricatures, I mean, there's some truth to them, but, well, they're caricatures. And there's a lot more subtlety and nuance about what motivates these guys and how they fall into this trap than maybe initially meets the eye. And it turns out that people who get caught up in these financial scandals often are a product of a system that's more or less encouraged bad behavior and incentivized people to act in certain ways and train people to act in certain ways. And then has become very adept at when things start unraveling, at pinning the blame on a very small number of bad apples while letting their superiors and top executives and the institutions themselves get off the hook with, at worst, you know, a minor slap on the wrist. And one of the things I found most startling about the story is the degree to which people who were involved in the LIBOR scandal, which, and we can talk about exactly what that entailed, but it's it's a really big financial scandal that has the potential to touch the finances of millions of people around the world, millions of institutions around the world. It's staggering to me that there are a very small number of people who were criminally convicted, who really who were criminally charged in this. And the people who were running these institutions, and many of the senior managers at these institutions who knew about and condoned, and in some cases even participated in this scandal, not only weren't prosecuted, but remain employed in the financial industry today. And that to me says a lot about the problems the financial institution has. It's made great strides since the crisis at reforming itself and improving its culture. But there's still a lot of people who I think the lesson they've learned from some of these scandals is that as long as they separate themselves with a couple of layers of management or don't put stuff in writing, there really aren't consequences for their actions. And I, obviously, I don't think that's a very good lesson to have learned. The LIBOR scandal, one of the things you do brilliantly in the book is explain why LIBOR matters, not just for institutions, not just for banks, but for ordinary people. Can you give us an overview of the LIBOR scandal? Yeah. So LIBOR is an acronym. It stands for the London Interbank Offer Rate, and it, it's often described as the world's most important number. And that's because it has it's basically the number that determines the interest rate that people or institutions pay on a really wide range of debt. So, and this is especially true in the U.S. and where individuals who have mortgages, for example, that have interest rates that go up and down, those are primarily set based on LIBOR. If you have an auto loan, a credit card loan, a student loan, and again, it's especially true in the U.S., but it's true to a lesser extent in other countries, it's often set in LIBOR. The biggest thing, though, is if you're a big institution, whether that's a town or a city or a company that is borrowing money from other banks, then your interest rate is often set based on LIBOR. And 
the scandal erupted because a bunch of banks, LIBOR's set every day in London around lunchtime. And it's basically a number that is pulled out of thin air by a bunch of low-level clerks sitting in the bowels of some of the world's biggest banks. And it's supposed to measure the amount that it would cost banks, theoretically, to borrow from each other. The reality is that, especially for the past decade, that number hasn't existed. So this is something that banks or their low-level employees are just estimating. And the secret that people like Tom Hayes, the main character of this book, recognized more than 10 years ago now, was that this is something that they could easily nudge up or down to suit their trading purposes because banks were making huge amounts of money trading derivatives that were linked to LIBOR. And so someone like Tom Hayes might be sitting on hundreds of millions of dollars worth of derivatives that stood to gain or lose value based on very small movements in LIBOR. And so people like Hayes would go to the other people in their institution and say, hey, could you today get LIBOR moved up very slightly or moved down very slightly? And nine times out of 10, their colleagues would comply. I mean, the thing that's really generated headlines in the U.S. in particular is the notion that everyday mortgage borrowers, for instance, could have lost a lot of money because of LIBOR manipulation. And I think that is probably an oversimplification. I'm not sure it's true, actually. But certainly what is true is that people on the other sides of these transactions with the banks, which included pension funds, municipalities, university endowments, things like that, they almost certainly did lose money. And they were certainly on the other side of a trade where people were controlling the outcome of a bet and they didn't realize it, which is not a good place to be. One thing, uh, David, sorry to interrupt, but one thing that that comes across very clearly, as you mentioned earlier about the it's particularly in the first half of the book, is is your carefully controlled disdain for this whole system that, as you say, ultimately passed the blame down to uh, only a few individuals, essentially one main individual in, in Tom Hayes. And I spent most of the first half of the book in a kind of barely contained anger about the way in which everyone was behaving from the top down. I just wondered, in identifying some of the characters here, whether you started unsympathetic and then developed a sympathy for some, including particularly Tom Hayes, as you say, mildly autistic genius at the centre of it, or whether you came out with a plague on all their houses view about the personalities and and institutions that you were writing about? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I started this as a reporter for the Wall Street Journal and was just covering the LIBOR scandal. And my view is a scandal that the journal is very proud of institutionally because it, the journal back in 2008, and this has nothing to do with me personally, but played a role in starting this investigation by writing about some of the aberrations in LIBOR. So from my perspective, I saw this as just a pretty black and white issue. It's another example of bad bankers manipulating things and probably harming normal people. And so I was kind of inclined to come in here thinking that I was just viewing it in a very black and white way, the way that most of the media views this. And then I started reporting on it and I got I started getting to know people like Hayes. And it really very quickly occurred to me that these are more or less normal people. And and Hayes is my age. He came from a similar socioeconomic background, had a family that was the same age as my family. And was he, he really was from easy. quite a humble socioeconomic well, background. Well, was, it was middle class, really. Yeah. I mean, there was... But not the, wealthy. No, he wasn't wealthy. He didn't grow up rich at all. But he, he grew up, you know, he was well-educated and had parents who were... I mean, his mom was a pretty senior person.
person actually working for Gordon Brown. And his dad was a, a colonel. And, you know, I saw in Hayes, it was just really easy for me to relate to him. Yes, he is mild and autistic, but more than that, he is someone who had just, from a young age, was a kind of a striver and was eager to find a job where he could fit in and put his skills to use. And banking became that outlet for him. So I think I had underestimated the degree to which these individuals were kind of pawns in a broader conspiracy. And that, that, and that to me is kind of the big revelation here. Because, you know, these are individuals their behavior, whose behavior is shaped in large part by the training they received and the incentives they received at these institutions. And a lot of them, not so much Hayes, but a lot of the other guys in this book, behave very badly in... I don't know, ways that I personally find abhorrent, but they're still being incentivized by these institutions and by each other in ways that are, I found really eye-opening to see the degree to which these people are basically programmed from the start to act in certain ways. There's a passage in the book where you describe very clearly this sort of almost closed system in which they worked, where they had completely lost sight, not only of the kind of moral lines, but also of the fact that the banks had some wider purpose. It was very clear that these groups of bankers and brokers and other intermediaries were essentially out to outwit and out-earn each other, almost to the exclusion of any sense of wider society. I mean, that was the part that really enraged me, I must say. Yeah, and and it's true. I mean, there's banks originally were designed to help lubricate the economy and lubricate the financial system. And they they were a bank in its purest form is supposed to allocate resources efficiently between people who have a surplus of money and people who have a deficit of money. And, you know, those are savers and borrowers. And the the degree to which a bank is highly profitable, that actually we think of that as a good thing from a bank perspective or from a shareholder perspective, but that's actually just money that's being sucked out of the economy. And banks, especially pre-crisis, they, they really were casinos. And casinos actually doesn't even do it justice because that's, it's more malicious than that. You'd sit on a trading floor at one of these banks and a, a phone would ring with a client. And if it was a kind of a dumb money claim. That's like it, that's the fund. phrase. Yeah, that's this dumb money phrase that was quite shocking, actually, to, to discover that that's what bankers refer to as ordinary investors. No, and it's true. They would fight on the trading floor for access to these guys because it was so easy to make money off of them. I and mean, brokers would use these clients, like pension funds or university endowments, they would use these clients essentially as bait to, or, or as rewards to hand favors to their prized clients because it was just so easy to rip them off. And that was obviously not what the banking system is supposed to be doing. And yet that behavior was just so widespread. It was just so common that no one batted an eye. It's not a far leap then to go into kind of manipulating something if to make money. I think. There's a passage in the book where you crystallize this. It's in the chapter called The Sycophants. And I'm going to read it because it's it's one of my favourite passages in the book. You're talking about Tom Hayes and you say, he viewed himself as operating within a closed system, facing off against other predatory professionals who were sufficiently sophisticated and often avaricious to deserve whatever they got. The perspective of the financial system as a playing field for these competitors, where amateurs were viewed as fair game if they were thought of at all, had been hammered into Hayes since he first set foot on the trading floor. It was a narrow, self-serving view, and its prevalence helped explain why the finance industry was heading for all sorts of trouble. But this was a game played hard, and if there were corners cut and envelopes pushed, well, that was just business. 
Yep, that about sums it up. That was a passage of the book, actually, that my editor and I went back and forth, I don't know, like a million times probably, because we knew that was an important passage. And we spent a lot of time picking those words and structuring those sentences in ways that really get that point across. I'm glad that that resonated with you, because that, that was meant to be one of the most important passages of the book. And one thing you do very well in the book is explain how, you know, what they were referring to as dumb money. But the victims in all of this, were, were it's the money of ordinary people. It's the teacher's pension funds it's the uh, the small-scale investors. Yeah, I mean, it's also just the broader financial system as a victim because a modern financial system is based on trust and confidence in the integrity of that system. I mean, there's not, every time you put money in a bank or even exchange money, that's essentially at its heart an act of trust and confidence in the integrity of a financial system. And when you have people that are cheating on a widespread kind of systemic, everyday routine basis, because it means that people... Normal people lose faith in their ability to do business with financial that, when they're operating properly, have a very positive effect on the economy. And if if we can't trust our financial institutions, that is a really big problem going forward. David, I wanted to ask you a bit about business books, because interestingly, within the book, there is a little sort of sub-theme of business books, because Tom Hayes was himself semi-obsessed with business books. I think he was a great fan or is a great fan of Michael Lewis's work. Barbarians at the Gate, which your book very much resembles. We were just discussing, Helen and I, before we started the recording. Lowenstein's When Genius Failed about the collapse of the hedge fund LTCM. I wonder whether you have any sense that your book, or indeed business books in general, can teach lessons that will be listened to, other than the lesson of how great it is to be a trader. I know that Michael Lewis felt that um, his early work, which he intended as a cautionary tale, he was appalled to discover that most people had read it as a kind of manual about how to make money and uh, <laughs> and have a great time, which is also one of the themes that comes out in, in the Spider Network. What, what kind of um, hope do you have for this book actually preventing things happening in future? Or are you cynical about that? Well, I'm a journalist, so I'm a little bit cynical. I mean, I think that... I guess one of my goals in writing this was to help normal human beings who don't work in finance actually understand some of the basic principles at work here. You know, a lot of this stuff, a lot of finance has, I think, by design been construed as overly complicated and kind of cloaked in this mystique that the finance industry doesn't want you to be able to penetrate. And I think the reality is when you boil a lot of these themes down to their essence, they're actually not quite that complicated. And I think if normal people understood some of the basics of this and understood that there's, you know, at its essence, this stuff is not that complicated. The people who are designing this are generally very smart, but, you know, they're just humans. And I think if that attitude could trickle down to the masses, that would be a really good thing for the world. I think having a citizenry that's financially literate and isn't intimidated by uh, a very important industry, like the finance industry, I think that's a healthy thing. Now, do I think that will actually happen as a result of this book or any other book? Probably not. I would like to think that this helps on the margins, but, you know, I've been writing about finance for big news organizations for long enough to know that there's, you know, impact and progress is incremental and, you know, that's okay. I mean, one of the other shocking things in the second half or last quarter of the book is is how the prosecutors on both sides of the Atlantic were also sort of playing a game here, which which eventually distilled into a, a very long jail sentence for, for Tom Hayes. Did you yeah. feel, I know you've written hundreds of pages here, which explained to us how difficult it was to apportion 
guilt here. Do you think that Tom Hayes was guilty? Yes, I, I do think he was guilty. I think he was. I think he was guilty, and I also think he was scapegoated. So that might seem contradictory on its face. Hayes did things that he knew were wrong. And there's been a little bit of revisionist history recently by his family and some of his supporters that he is just completely innocent. And that's not only not true, but I don't think Tom even believes that. And I, I spent several years getting to know him, and you know, I spent, I don't know, thousands of hours with him, I think. And he was very candid, especially at the outset, and I found that really refreshing. He acknowledged a, a number of the things that he had done left a really bad taste in his mouth and he realized that they reeked of collusion and reeked of fraud. And so yes, that means that he at least certainly from an ethical standpoint is guilty. And the law here is really complicated, so we won't get into that. But I does that mean that I think he got what he deserved or that justice has been served here? Absolutely not. First of all, Hayes is basically alone. He's in a maximum security prison serving a really long jail sentence. And basically no one else is in there with him. And Hayes throughout had his boss's support for what he was doing. In some cases, his bosses were doing some version of the same thing that he was doing, participating alongside him. And the reason he's in a maximum security prison is the sentence he received is akin to what violent criminals receive. So we should should say that he received, initially he received a 14-year sentence of which he had to serve half. And then... On appeal, that was reduced slightly to 11, right, to 11 years. years. And the notion to me that Tom Hayes alone is serving a, a really long prison sentence is just extremely unfair. So while he's guilty, I I also think that he has been on the receiving end of a really unjust process and an unjust system. He, he's obviously the biggest connoisseur of business books in your book. What does he actually think of your book? <laughs> That's a good question. He has not read it. And the reason he has not not read it, I sent him a, well, at least the last I heard, he hasn't, maybe he's read it recently. I sent him a copy of the book in prison uh, as soon as it was published. And his wife, who I remain in close contact with and who's one of the main characters in this book as well, recommended to him that he not read it because Tom is in a really bad mental health state right now. And he is, I think his wife has been very worried at times he's suicidal. And he's kind of descended into a really dark, angry, depressed state. And her concern was that reading this book was going to, you know, he would relive a lot of this. Yes. And that that would not be good for him. Yes, that makes sense. When you were planning and writing this book, did you have in mind any other business books? What business books do you yourself admire and what were you hoping to emulate? We've talked a bit about Barbarians at the Gate. Yeah, I mean, there's like a long list. I I really i am a huge fan of this genre of books. There's been a tremendous number of books that have influenced me over the years and and that I read in preparation for this book, partly because I, I, I made sure I read everything that was mentioned in the book. So a lot of these books have really shaped Tom as a young man. And as you can see reading the book, one of my goals was to really get inside his head. So in Barbarians of the Gate is a classic. Uh, the entire Michael Lewis library, I think any serious financial journalist has probably read every single one of those. I certainly have. I mean, Liar's Poker is an amazing book. The Big Short's an amazing book. Moneyball. Moneyball and The Blind Side are my two favorites from Michael Lewis. My my all-time favorite, though, is probably Den of Thieves. 
by James Stewart, which is about the insider trading scandals of the 1980s with Michael Milken and Ivan Bosky and those guys. And it, it really brings you inside these personalities and gets you to see these kind of evil characters in a much more three-dimensional, nuanced way than you would just read in the business press. And that, that was what I was going for here, is really to be able to show some of these characters in, you know, in all the shades of gray that they deserve. Each of those books that you mention, the writers speak to hundreds of people. When you're starting off on a project like this, do you think, I've got this great lineage of business books and I want to be writing a, a book that compares to Barbarians at the Gate, When Genius Failed? How many people did you speak to in the course of the reporting? I have no idea. A lot. I mean, dozens and dozens and dozens. I mean, I would guess probably about 100, but I'm not, I honestly have never counted. I mean, the advantage I had here, one was that there were a couple of very extended trials that featured lots of evidence. And so you'd see a number of the characters who I had never even met would march into court and I would have a chance to A, listen to their testimony and then B, try and talk to them during lunch break sometimes get to know them and go have a drink with them afterwards or coffee with them afterwards. And that was, just from a journalistic standpoint, having people presented in front of you physically that you can then go pester afterwards and kind of try and talk to them and present you a case for why they should talk to you, that is enormously helpful because half the battle often is getting through these people's lawyers and getting access to them. So that was one advantage. The other is that in the course of reporting on this, I was given essentially a computer hard drive that was filled with hundreds of gigabytes of evidence. It was basically the prosecutor's hard drive. It had phone recordings, chat transcripts, emails, videos, seating charts, personnel records, just tons of stuff like that for dozens of the characters in this book. And so I went through every single piece of that, which was a painstaking process. And so it gives you this really, and it's kind of creepy, actually, it's this kind of voyeuristic view into people's lives in a way that they never intended. And so that was a really nice supplement to the actual human interviews I did. It, gave, it allowed me to write this in a way that uh, I couldn't have otherwise. Was it structured when you got this big hard drive? Was it all just a jumble or was there any sort of structure to it at all? How easy was it to filter out what you needed and it, how much did you discover? It was not easy at all. I mean, I spent way too long actually doing this. It was supposed to be grouped by like different banks and different or different brokerages, but it was not very well organized. And there's just so much of it. And I, I just got really excited when I saw this and started kind of randomly going through it. And then I forgot where I was. So it was, it probably could have been done in a more efficient manner by someone better organized and more patient than me. But as it said, it took I mean, months and months of full-time work going through this. We should ask you, you're up against five other great books on our short list. Which of the other finalists did you like? If you were a betting man, where would you place your bet for this prize? I would bet on Janesville, uh, which is a really fascinating, extraordinary book that I, I think better than almost any book I've read in the past couple of years. It explains the rise of Donald Trump. And I, I don't, that's not even really the explicit point of the book, but it does a really phenomenal job of it. It came to the Wisconsin city where Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House, is from. And it's a city that is, you know, pretty down on its luck as much of the industrial Midwest in the U.S. is. And it just does a really good job in a nuanced, non-judgmental, non 
kind of political way explaining what's going on there. Yes, it's Amy Amy Goldstein spent time there, didn't she, after the closure of the General Motors assembly plant there, getting an idea. It's it's a a nuanced book. We'll obviously be talking to Amy as part of this series. If you had to choose, David, what would be your all-time favourite business book? Yeah, that is such an unfair question. Uh, It'd probably be a tie between Moneyball and Benefits. Um, which I could read over and over and over again and always be happy and learn something new. That's it from us this week. Join us in a week's time when we will be talking to another of our shortlisted authors. Check out the full list at ft.com forward slash book award. My thanks to David Enrich and to Andrew Hill and to Yanina Conboy, our producer. And please don't forget to talk to us on Twitter using the hashtag FTBizBooks. We love to hear from you. Until next time, goodbye. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.